Showtime. Show Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Get the coffee going, get the tea going, or a beverage of choice. Get in your most comfy chair. Kick your feet back. Take this time for yourself, folks. You've worked hard and you deserve it. Tonight, Douglas Horn returns. Douglas P. Horn is a former U.S. Naval officer and graduate cum laude, majoring in history from The Ohio State University. Doug is author of the five-volume work Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Now, that's about the U.S. government's medical cover-up of the JFK assassination. Tonight, Doug's got two new books out. As I hold up one for people that are not watching on television, this one is called Deception, Intrigue, and the Road to War, Volume 1, and of course, Volume 2. I should work for Cirque du Soleil. I swear to God, I should work for Cirque du Soleil. And this is Volume 2, of course, in my left hand, Volume 1 in my right hand. It's an amazing, amazing story, folks, that Doug has done research on. Now, according to Doug's new research, only 11 days, 11 days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which was November 22nd, 1941, 11 days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, I'm talking about not Pearl Harbor, FDR received a top-secret message from Churchill warning of an impending Japanese attack. Let me say that one more time. 11 days before the attack on Pearl Harbor, on November 26th, 1941, on that day, FDR received a top-secret message from Churchill warning of an impending Japanese attack, specifically on Pearl Harbor. Doug has produced a grand new synthesis which answers the persistent question, did FDR know about the Pearl Harbor attack before it took place. It is my great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Douglas Horn. Doug, how are you, my friend? I'm fine, Brent. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. I, I'm glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you back on, my friend, too. And I also want to give a quick shout-out to Beverly, who is attentively listening in the basement. Hi, Beverly. <laughs> That's Doug's thank you. wife. You're very welcome. <laughs> Doug, can you take us back for the folks that aren't aware of what happened on December 7th, 19, 1941, the day of infamy that will live on forever? Can you give us a brief synopsis? I, I'd be happy to. Uh, the stage that sets the Pearl Harbor attack is the fact that uh, Germany in September 1939 when they attacked Poland. And at that point, England and France went to war with Germany, and World War II began as a European war, yeah. which the American people wanted to stay out of very much. Uh, what Roosevelt had been doing uh, since the fall of France, France fell to Germany in, uh, in uh, June of 1940. It only took six weeks. So Germany invaded France and, the, and Belgium and the Netherlands in May 1940. France collapsed within six weeks. And the British Army was kicked off the continent of Europe. So it was Hitler bestriding Europe with the world's most powerful army. And the only people standing up to him were, was England. And their troops had been kicked off the European continent, and they had no tanks and no artillery. And everybody expected them to lose. Hitler was afraid to invade. He kept delaying. He wouldn't invade England. And so what Roosevelt did is he persuaded the American people to provide all 
all assistance short of war, all material aid short of war to Great Britain to keep them from going under. And in the meantime, he began rearming the United States as fast as he could, he and the Congress. Uh, so uh, to make a long story short, my belief is that from May 1940 on, it was always his intention to get the United States into the war, but he couldn't say that out loud because there were so many isolationists in this country. Uh, even when Pearl Harbor was attacked in December, on December 7th, 1941, still about 80% of the American people did not want to enter the World War and did not want to fight Germany. So on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese did something that uh, no one had ever done in the world. They took their six large aircraft carriers and they put them together in one giant task force. They had practiced this thing for six months and they attacked uh, Pearl Harbor, the principal U.S. naval base in the Pacific, with a massive air raid in two waves. And uh, at the cost of only 29 airplanes, they only had 29 airplanes shot down out of, out of 350 planes. They sank four American battleships, uh, damaged uh, uh, four other battleships, and destroyed about 188 airplanes on the ground and uh, killed about 2,400 Americans. Now, what that did was that launched America into World War II, but not through the door that Roosevelt had originally imagined, which was a direct confrontation with Hitler's Germany, it launched us into the war through what we call the back door. Okay, let's go to that secret message that FDR received from Churchill November 22nd, sure. 1941. Now, once again, folks, this is 11 days before the attack. Before the attack, he received that message. Now, this message, most likely, folks, was deciphered by the Bletchley Park codebreakers but at the Far East Combined Bureau in Singapore. That's and right. it specifically mentioned Pearl Harbor. Can we talk about that and the key Japanese Navy message? Right, love to. So uh, because Roosevelt flipped his foreign policy on its head, he flipped the, the entire U.S. foreign policy with Japan on its head overnight and changed it 180 degrees on November 26th. And that's why we believe Churchill sent him this warning on the 25th, uh, because up until the 26th, Roosevelt had been pursuing, and his Secretary of State, Cordell Hall, had been pursuing a modus vivendi with Japan, which means a way of living together, a way of seeking a temporary accommodation for at least three months that would prevent the two countries from going to war for anywhere from three to six months. And overnight, he flipped it and sent Japan an ultimatum that he knew they could not accept. Uh, so, uh, obviously, there was a stimulus for this. And all of the mainstream historical explanations for, that, for why he would do this have never held any water. And my contribution to this revisionist historian's debate uh, is that I think I've actually discovered the exact Japanese message that the British codebreakers in Singapore intercepted and decrypted, and which Churchill must have passed just a few days later to Roosevelt late on the 25th or early on November 26th. So if I may, I'd like to read this message because it's very short and it's very, very uh, dramatic. That'd be now, the message, was sent, yeah, the message was sent on November 22nd, 1941, from Admiral Yamamoto, who is the commander-in-chief of the Japanese 
combined fleet to the first air fleet. Now, the first air fleet was those six aircraft carriers that I mentioned that attacked Pearl Harbor and all of their escorts. Now, they actually got underway to head toward Pearl Harbor on November 26th, but they had to receive uh, messages that told them to do this. They were, they were at a remote anchorage north of Japan waiting for instructions. So on, the, on November 22nd, he sent the following message to them by radio, and we know it was sent in the JN-25 code, the Japanese Navy's operational code, and here's what it said, quote, the task force keeping its movement strictly secret and maintaining close guard against submarines and aircraft shall advance into Hawaiian waters and upon the very opening of hostilities shall attack the main force of the United States fleet in Hawaii and deal it a mortal blow. So twice he's mentioned Hawaii and once he's mentioned destroying the U.S. fleet and the only place the fleet was was in Pearl Harbor. So the, the end of the message reads as follows. Should the negotiations with the United States prove successful, the task force shall hold itself in readiness forthwith to return and reassemble. In other words, they were told to go attack the Pacific Fleet in Hawaii, but if negotiations are successful, you will turn around and come home and you will not launch the attack. And uh, this message sent on the 22nd, uh, the codebreakers in, the, in uh, Singapore, the British codebreakers, who worked for Bletchley Park, as you said, they would have had about uh, two and a half days to, to break this message, to de decrypt it and translate it, to double-check everything and get it to Winston Churchill by their own radio circuits. And Churchill would have had about half a day to turn it around and get it to Roosevelt. And uh, I, I think that's what happened because uh, – what Roosevelt did on the 26th by sending this ultimatum to Japan called the Hall Note, it was a, it was a diplomatic note from Cordell Hall, which gave the Japanese uh, 10 conditions, which they could not accept. Uh, it, it made sure that negotiations would not be successful. And uh, so, in other words, it ensured that this attack would continue as it was planned. And uh, this, this happenstance, was actually a godsend for President Roosevelt because he had been trying uh, the entire uh, autumn, autumn of 1941, to stimulate a war with Germany by fighting the U-boats in the Atlantic. And in fact, there had been three incidents between U.S. Navy destroyers and German U-boats in the Atlantic, and the American people just did not care. They did not give a darn. And uh, he realized that that primary strategy of his had not worked. So all he had left was this backdoor to war. And to, to wrap this up, what he knew was what the American people did not know. He knew from other messages we had broken, diplomatic messages we had broken in August uh, between the Japanese ambassador in Berlin and Tokyo, was that Hitler had promised the Japanese ambassador back in August that if Japan found itself with at war with the United States for any reason, that Germany would make war on America. Roosevelt knew that since August 15th. And so when his primary plan to get into the war against Hitler and destroy the greatest evil the world had ever seen in the modern age failed, uh, this was the only 
way that he had of getting into the war, and the Japanese basically dropped the present right in his lap. Exactly right. You know, I had an uncle who fought in the Battle of the Atlantic, because you have to understand, folks, um, Canada was at war with Hitler the second Britain went to war. We're a Commonwealth country, mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as well as Australia. So September 1st, 1939, Canada was at war. Now, Britain was a, a lonely little island out there, and it needed all kinds of supplies, food, all kinds of things they needed, especially ammunition. All that was coming basically from the United States, but what they would do is they'd ship it through Canada because the United States was trying to appease the isolationist movement that was happening in, in the United States at the time. They wanted to stay out of the war and be kind of an honest broker, if you will. Well, that wasn't quite working out so well because, as uh, Doug so correctly said FDR's point was to get in the war. So he started, FDR started giving American ships stuff to transport to Britain in the hopes that one of them, believe it or not, would be sunk, therefore an excuse to get into the war. That wasn't quite working out as well. So I hope that brings everybody up to date where we are. Now, Britain was hanging on just just hanging on by the skin of their teeth. I'm not kidding. What had happened... That's right. 1941, in fact, was a very bad year for Great Britain. Oh, terrible, yeah. terrible. What, Doug was right. What happened at Dunkirk was all the British Army and a little bit of the French Army got stuck... The, the movie's coming out. You'll be able to watch the movie for more information on this. Got stuck on this little, little piece of peninsula called Dunkirk. And they had to bring little flotilla boats, fishing boats over, and to grab the troops to get them off. Otherwise, they would have been decimated. What that did also, there was no way to transport back to Britain tanks, military vehicles, armaments, anything big. All they had basically is what they could carry on their back. In many cases, they left their rifles. It wasn't going to be a hard task for Hitler to walk into Britain. So let's, let's pick it up just before, maybe starting around 1933, that FDR was becoming aware sure. of uh, sure. Uh, in 1933, yeah. Roosevelt was, you know, uh, inaugurated the first time in March 1933. And this fellow named Adolf Hitler that we've all heard about uh, took power in January 1933. And uh, what he did, uh, and by the way, this was the decade of the, dec of the this was the decade of the dictators, where Hitler and Mussolini uh, seemed to be dominating in Europe, and in fact they were because the French and the British were uh, economically weak and obsessed with pacifism, with not wanting to fight another war in Europe. So uh, Hitler began rearming immediately in violation of the Versailles Treaty. He began building a navy. He built an enormous army, uh, built as many tanks, as many airplanes as he could, a huge air force, the world's strongest air force at the time. And uh, by 1938, people saw this coming. Uh, uh, so uh, the balloon finally went up on September 1st, 39. And then the question was, at home in the United States, the question was, will the United States get sucked into the war or will the president keep us out of the war? So he, he talked initially uh, about his intent to keep us out of the war, but also said that Everybody has the right to their own conscience and their own opinions, and uh, but that he would try to keep us out of the war, even though he had sympathy with Great Britain. 
But uh, as the war got worse and worse for Great Britain, uh, he knew that he had to do all he could to help. So uh, not only did he trade 50 old U.S. destroyers for eight British bases in the Western Hemisphere to help out the British Navy, but he uh, persuaded Congress to pass the Lend-Lease Bill, which allowed America to give uh, Great Britain free munitions, free weapons of war, uh, throughout the rest of the war for free. Uh, and the only condition was they had to return what wasn't destroyed when the war was over. So that was passed by Congress after much debate in March of 1941. And then after that, uh, the real question became, will this help the U.S. stay out of the war or will it suck us into the war? Because what Roosevelt decided to do was for the U.S. warships to start convoying, to start escorting British merchant ships in September of 1941. And that's when he also decided to conduct an undeclared war against German U-boats in the hopes that there would be an incident and that it would be a casus belli, a cause for war with the American public. And as I said earlier, there were three incidents, uh, three destroyers fired at by U-boats, one in September 41, the, the torpedoes missed, one destroyer was hit, uh, on in the middle of October, and uh, many people were killed. And then the third time this happened, the destroyer was sunk with great loss of life, and the American people did not give a darn. So Roosevelt was really flummoxed at this point. And on the other side of the world, while he had never been happy, no, nobody had been happy with Japan's increasing aggression in the Far East. They had been at war with China for four years, and they were really moving into Southeast Asia and it was clear they were going to use what we now call Vietnam and Cambodia. They were going to use that as a jump-off point to take Malaya, Singapore, and the Dutch East Indies. It was very clear that they were about to do that. So what he started to do in the Pacific was shift from a policy of deterrence to one of provocation. And he was doing this at the same time that he was trying to stimulate Hitler to declare war on us or to stimulate the American people to declare war on Hitler. So Roosevelt, his biggest step was that he uh, put an economic freeze on all Japanese assets in the U.S. at the end of July 41. And what that did is it cut off their oil. Japan was dependent upon the U.S. for over 90 percent of their oil for their Navy and for their industry. And once he did that, the Japanese went into a panic. And it accomplished two things that Roosevelt wanted to accomplish. The first thing was he did not want them attacking the Soviet Union. Because at this time, the Soviet Union was at war with Hitler, and the only chance of uh, Hitler not gaining the world was for the Russians to stay in the war and to keep killing German soldiers. So he did not want Japan attacking its traditional enemy, Russia, in the north. So he cut off Japan's oil, and that forced them to abandon any thought of attacking Russia. And instead, Japan said, we have to go south. And we're going to grab the Dutch East Indies. And, of course, when we do that, we'll be at war with Britain and America, but so be it. So that's the first reason he cut off their oil. The second reason was uh, eventually, as he said uh, to his chief of naval operations earlier that year, eventually the Japanese will make a mistake and then we will enter the war. So he was depending upon this eventually to cause them to uh, panic or make a mistake. And then he knew we would get into the war that way if we had to. And that's, that ends up being what happened. It just took a while. Uh, it takes a while to plan a major strike on the enemy's principal oh, base yeah. in the Pacific. 
And it, that's what it took. It took about six months to, to get it going. Doug, what was in that overture? Um, because one of the, the messages sent by Yamamoto to those six aircraft carriers was, if negotiations don't work, were the Japanese making overtures towards FDR before Pearl Harbor to try and save the peace? Uh, yes. Uh, the Japanese uh, and the United States had positions that were so far apart, there was really never any way they were going to meet in the middle. But the Japanese were trying. Uh, and we kept saying, no, you have to get out of China. You're raping the country. You're destroying China. You've been in there four years. It, it was a real human rights issue in this country. And uh, they refused. Uh, they couldn't extricate themselves from that war. Uh, it was very expensive for them. Uh, but there was too much loss of face involved in leaving China. So Japan was determined to have an expansionist colonial empire in Asia and basically to kick out the European empires in Asia and to take over. And so, you know, we didn't approve of any of that. So uh, Japan and the United States, after the oil embargo began at the end of July, we both began to find uh, to see if there was a way we could at least delay what looked like an inevitable war. So on uh, November 20th, 41, Japan proposed its own modus vivendi, its own temporary solution to avoid war for at least three months. And then we countered with our own, we were about to counter with our own on November 26th. It had already been approved by the cabinet on the 25th. It had been approved by the cabinet and the president. We were about to send that message on the 26th, very similar to their proposal to us. Uh, if you get out of, basically what we said was, if you, if you will get out of South Vietnam and get out of Cambodia, uh, we will start selling you some oil again. Not very much, but a little bit. And that that was supposed to delay conflict for at least three months. And instead of sending that, Roosevelt flipped and sent the hard-nosed ultimatum. And so, uh, yes, there were negotiations going on, but the Japanese really didn't have much hope in them. Uh, it was, uh, they were kind of going through the motions. And uh, for that matter, so is the United States. We just, uh, because Roosevelt's primary enemy was Hitler and his primary goal was to defeat Nazi Germany, uh, he didn't like what Japan was doing, but that was not his primary focus until he had this bombshell dropped in his lap on November 26th from Churchill. And uh, I believe Churchill used a secret communication circuit that was set up in New York City between the British Purchasing Office, run by Mr. William Stevenson, the man called Intrepid. He was a Canadian, I believe. And uh, I think Churchill in, sent... Indeed he was, folks, and he was trained at yeah. Camp X, which is a stone's throw from where I am in Kingston. Kingston, folks, is uh, where I broadcast from, is a Canadian forces base. I guess Annapolis would be a better analogy just for you. And we had this place called Camp X where we trained all these spies all these great British spies and English spies and American spies. This fellow, William Stevens, uh, was trained there and then opened up an office, quote-unquote, <laughs> in New York City. Right, and his, and his office in New York City, uh, once England went to war with Germany, once England and Canada went to war with Germany, his office uh, had two missions. One was to do all the British purchasing of weapons in this country, 
And the other uh, purpose, which was supposedly secret, but not not a very well-kept secret, was to get America into the war. His job was propaganda and to mold American public opinion as much as he could. And so there was a secret circuit, the Brit- Britain's highest encrypted code, linked with New York, New York and Great Britain linked with an underwater cable, so it didn't have to be sent by radio. And uh, that was used for messages between Churchill and Roosevelt that they didn't want to go through the State Department, things that they wanted to keep secret between the two of them. So we know that later on the 26th of November, on the day Roosevelt sent the ultimatum to Japan, we know that late that day he sent his son, Colonel James Roosevelt, up to New York City with a message back to Churchill. And the message said, quote, negotiations off. Expect action within two weeks, end quote. So it appears to other historians and to me as well that that was actually a reply to something that was sent earlier. And almost certainly the something that was sent earlier would have been uh, the British decryption of the Japanese attack message. Great guest tonight, folks. Doug Horn is here. Douglas Horn, of course. You know him from our previous show with him on the JFK assassination. He's got two great books out I'm holding up right now for people that are unable to see this on television. The first one is called Deception, Intrigue, and the Road to War, Volume 1, and Deception, Intrigue, and the Road to War, Volume 2, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest's uh, book covers, and they'll take you right to a spot where you can get them from the comfort of your own home. Okay, lots of questions. Would that cable not have been enough proof to Congress to declare war on Japan before the attack? That's a really good question. I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, I think I think that the advice he would have received from most of the people he would have shared it with would have been to uh, blow this up, make it public, embarrass the Japanese, and force them to back off. And uh, and I think because uh, Roosevelt was was just obsessed with getting into the war against Hitler and defeating uh, Nazi tyranny, uh, he knew that America had a tremendous industrial base, but he also knew that he did not want to take a disunited country to war. He wanted to take a united country to war, and that's the point of everything here. Uh, if you get attacked by someone else, and it's very clear who the aggressor was, and there's no doubt in anyone's mind that will unite anybody's country. And in fact, that's what happened uh, on the day before Pearl Harbor. 80% of the American people did not want to fight Germany. This is this is after watching World War II for over two years. They still didn't want to fight Germany. And uh, well, I think in and case, nobody and nobody in the American public thought we would end up fighting Japan. No, you know, and I understand why. I completely get it. I mean, after what happened in World War One, the devastation, the loss of life, the barbarity, who the heck wants to go through that again if it's not if you haven't been attacked? Why would you want to get involved in that? So yes, there are parallels to today, folks. Exactly right. You know, there are absolutely, and we've got to learn from the past so we don't repeat the negative aspects of the past. Now, let's talk a little bit about FDR's core values and his personality. I think this sure. is what made the difference. Had another president been president, 
I'm not quite sure that the Americans would have entered the war the way they did. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the only revisionist historian I know of in regard to Pearl Harbor who's not a Roosevelt hater. I approach this subject uh, being a Roosevelt admirer and thinking he really was a great man in the right place at the right time, just as Churchill was for all his faults. He was the right man in the right place at the right time. And uh, so Roosevelt was a champion of the common man, a strong advocate of human rights and individual freedoms. He strongly supported free trade and self-determination for all peoples and actually despised the British Empire and colonialism and mercantilism. Uh, in spite of that, he and Churchill got along most of the time, but he really did not like the British Empire. What, what did motivate him was that he hated Hitler. Uh, he was what we called a Wilsonian internationalist, which means uh, under the rubric of uh, President Woodrow Wilson, who started the League of Nations after World War I, Roosevelt believed in the interdependency of modern nations and in avoiding war through engagement with other countries, not through isolationism. So he opposed isolationism, and he strongly opposed fascism. Now, Roosevelt was a multifaceted personality and a man of many faces. So in pursuit of his ends and his in, in pursuit of ends that were consistent with his altruistic core values, FDR could employ means that were devious and duplicitous, that were elusive and dissembling, and that were manip manipulative. There's another word for all that, and that word is Machiavellian. And these were this is a man who was focused on ends and not means. So his admirers, <coughs> pardon me, admired FDR for his cleverness and political maneuvering. And his opponents uh, described him as devious and duplicitous. There's two quotes that I need to read here that are just fascinating uh, about Roosevelt. One is by columnist uh, Walter Lippmann, who was one of the big American uh, op-ed writers for decades. And here's the quote. He says, quote, Roosevelt was a wonderful finagler. He loved to take a complicated thing, which involved a certain amount of deception, hornswoggling of people, and somehow get it done, end quote. Uh, another historian who wrote a, a very uh, good book about uh, Churchill and Roosevelt about 12 or 13 years ago, John Meacham, said, uh, what could make Roosevelt a trying husband and a frustrating friend could make him a great president? Namely, sometimes politicians have to pursue different courses at the same time and deceive those closest to them about what they are doing, end quote. So Roosevelt's a man of bewildering complexity. He could be bold or cautious, informal or dignified, cruel or kind, intolerant or long-suffering, urbane or rustic, uh, intemperous, excuse me, impetuous or temporizing, and Machiavellian or moralistic. And uh, he was always performing. Uh, FDR met once with the great uh, American radio actor Orson Welles. <coughs> Excuse me. And Roosevelt told Orson Welles that they were, quote, the two greatest actors in America, end quote. So that's Roosevelt. And uh, ultimately, though, the inner FDR was detached impenetrable and enigmatic like a sphinx. He did not keep a diary and forbade his cabinet members to take notes during meetings. Isn't that interesting? Wow. Yes. 
Oh, so and there's he, one more quote. So he could write. This says it all. Go ahead, yeah. please. Yeah. In 1942, in March, now this is after the Americans had just entered the war. In fact, it was a very dark time in the war for us. Uh, he, he made a famous statement to his secretary of the Treasury, uh, Henry Morgenthau. Roosevelt said, quote, You know I am a juggler, and I never let my right hand know what my left hand does. I am perfectly willing to mislead and tell untruths if it will help win the war. End quote. And that, I'm convinced, uh, summarizes his attitude about this whole world conflict from the moment it started, uh, was that he was a juggler. He didn't let his left hand know what his right hand was doing, and he was willing to tell untruths to accomplish uh, the end he wanted, which was the defeat of uh, totalitarian fascism. Uh, and if he had to uh, twist some arms and engage in deception and intrigue to do so, he was willing to do that. So uh, some of my libertarian friends and people who are pacifists, I mean to the bone, will be very disturbed uh, by this story that Roosevelt found out about Pearl Harbor 11 days before the attack happened and, and didn't tell anybody and especially didn't tell anybody in Hawaii. Uh, but if well, you're looking what, at the big picture... Wanted, that's where I wanted yeah. to go. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Daily Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. He's sitting on this information, and we know that the carriers were out of Pearl Harbor. They weren't there. When did that order to get the carriers come out of Pearl Harbor come in? I'm just wondering if he did that himself yeah. uh, in some it's, kind to lessen the the extent of the attack or the profoundness of the of the attack is a better way of putting it. Well, I can uh, I'm going to answer your question in two ways. Uh, the end result of the two operational U.S. carriers in the Pacific at the time. The end result of them being not in port that day is that uh, the Japanese were not able to destroy their primary target. Their primary targets were the U.S. carriers, and just one notch below that were the U.S. battleships. Uh, the order went out from the chief of naval operations. Oddly enough, listen to this date, on November 26th. <laughs> How about that? On November 26th, on the same day the Japanese task force sailed from, from uh, an island north of Japan to hit Pearl, on November 26th, the same day Roosevelt flipped and sent an ultimatum to Japan, the Navy sent a message to the uh, Admiral in Pearl Harbor, Admiral Kimmel, and to the Army commander, General Short, and they said, use aircraft carriers and transmit about one half of the uh, Army fighter planes from Hawaii to the island of Midway and the island of Wake. And so these, uh, this Admiral and General got together the next day, and they said, well, we can't do that. We can't put... Army fighters on Navy carriers, they won't know how to take off. Uh, if the carriers got into a scrap with, let's say, the Japanese, they wouldn't be able to defend themselves. So they said, okay, we're going to send airplanes to Wake and Midway. We'll send Marine Corps fighters because they have tail hooks. They can land on carriers. They've been trained to take off from carriers. So this, you know, one carrier, the uh, uh, Enterprise, left uh, before the Lexington. The Lexington left a few days later. And they were both at sea on December 7th. Now, before everybody uh, jumps to conclusions and says, well, that was planned so the Japanese wouldn't hit them, there's, I'm going to throw cold water on that idea for two reasons. Uh, 
The first reason is, at that time, the United States Navy, and for that matter, the world, nobody considered the aircraft carrier the primary fighting weapon in, in a nation's fleet. They considered the battleship and the battle line the primary weapon. And at, the, at that time, especially, the only person in Japan that believed it was Yamamoto. I mean, he was a revolutionary uh, tactical thinker. But uh, the United States Navy was still very hidebound, believed in the battleships and the big guns, and they they never combined carriers into groups of more than two. Usually they'd operate singly, one at a time, as scouting forces. So uh, the American Navy wasn't thinking that way yet, that, gee, we've got to protect the carriers. I really think that we got lucky on that one, Brent. I, 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 it looks bad on paper. I think we got lucky because the, the, actually the Enterprise was due to return to Pearl Harbor at 8 o'clock on the day of the attack. And the Pearl Harbor attack okay. started just before, okay. just before 8 It was due to, right. to be returning, and, uh, and weather had delayed the ship, and they didn't come in until that evening. And so uh, the people in Washington that gave the order for the carriers to leave and go on this uh, errand, uh, they never said leave on a certain date, and they never said stay at sea and don't come back until a certain date. They never said anything that specific. So I think the United States got very lucky. Uh, we originally had four carriers in the Pacific. One was sent to the Atlantic to help fight U-boats, and that was the Yorktown. Another carrier, the Saratoga, was in the shipyard on the West Coast getting repaired. So the only two that we had that were operational, Enterprise and Lexington, and Lexington excuse me, they got very lucky, I think, by happen happening to be at sea. The timing looks very suspicious, but and you can argue about it forever, but I think we just got lucky on that one. Now, you've got this big, huge Japanese task force coming towards you right across the, uh, the Pacific Ocean. It's going to take them a few weeks to get across the, or a few days at least anyways, yep. to get across. Was there Twelve nobody that, that sighted this battle group coming towards them and sounding an alarm? Was there nobody on, say, Wake Island or any of the other uh, yep. islands that were around? You are. Uh, you must have read this book. <laughs> You're asking all the good questions. I love this. <laughs> You're uh, very welcome, and yes, I did. And God bless you for sending them to me. They're fabulous, folks. Uh, yeah, fabulous. You're welcome. Uh, the U.S. Navy issued what Congress later called a vacant sea order on November 25th, and that ordered the U.S. Navy, to tell all the merchant ships in the Pacific, you will vacate the North Pacific, you will not uh, travel through the North Pacific, you will go to the Orient if you're going to go to, uh, well, and the p ships that had been going to Japan had stopped because a lot of people were afraid that there might be war brewing. But there were still a lot of ships going to China or to, to French Indochina or to the Dutch East Indies or whatever, or, or to uh, even Australia. The, the Navy was ordered to route all those ships through the South Pacific and to the Orient through the Torres Strait, which is between Australia and New Guinea. So that was a radical act that was taken. And uh, in fact, I've, I'm going to correct myself. I think it was taken on the 26th of November on this magic date that keeps popping up. Anyway, uh, uh, so there were no merchant ships in the North Pacific to notice this Japanese fleet coming from way north of Japan in the Kurile Islands, 
uh, traveling southeast toward Hawaii through the North Pacific. There was a Dutch but, naval attache in Washington December 2nd. Yes, but... December 7th. Okay, go ahead. That's right, but... But, guess what? There is a U.S. Navy uh, listening network of uh, intercept radio intercept stations, radio men who would copy down, uh, like Japanese messages, copy them down to be decrypted later, hopefully. And they would also do lines of bearing, radio direction finding. And if you, could, if you had one radio site in Dutch Harbor in Alaska, you had another one in Seattle and another one in Los Angeles, uh, and you had three lines of bearing on the same transmission, you could get a fix in the ocean and you would know where the ships were. So we had American uh, listening sites plotting radio direction finding lines of bearing between November 30th and December 4th of what they knew were Japanese ships because of the frequencies being used, talking to other Japanese ships, going through the North Pacific, traveling east from Japan, in an easterly direction. And these guys, these three or four key witnesses, insisted years later they reported this to the Office of Naval Intelligence in Washington. <clears throat> so, is there any proof that they really did? Yes, there is. And this, this proof I'm about to talk about proves that Roosevelt had to know the attack was coming, even if he didn't receive a message from Churchill. He had to know, and here's why. The Dutch naval attaché to the United States Captain Raneft had carte blanche uh, with the U.S. Navy. He was uh, considered a very trusted person uh, for reasons I won't go into here. And they, they, were, uh, they had rolled out the red carpet for this guy. Now, this is the Dutch government in exile, which is actually in London. And he's working for them. And he's still a major player because the Dutch East Indies is where the rest of the oil is. The oil that the United States didn't have, the rest of the oil was in what we now call Indonesia. It was in the Dutch East Indies. So he was an important player. So on the 2nd of December, he wrote in his diary, I'm going to read this, meeting at the Navy Department, the location of two Japanese carriers leaving Japan with eastern course or pointed out to me on the map, end quote. Now, that's a sh very short diary entry, but you notice how close it is to the attack, December 2nd. It's right in the middle of this period where we know that U.S. Navy radio men were tracking Japanese ships talking to each other on the radio, which, by the way, proves that the uh, traditional view that the Japanese fleet maintained radio silence is false. It's a myth. It's not true. Uh, there's enough smoke here that I'm sure there's a fire. And uh, so there was not only this diary entry from December 2nd. The big one is from December 6th. Now, this is one day before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, Captain Raneft of the Dutch Navy makes this diary entry. I'll read you the key words in the entry. Saturday, uh, December 6th, 1941. At 1400 to the Navy Department, the department is closed except the Division of Office of Naval Intelligence, where a night watch is kept. Everyone is present at ONI. At my request, they show me the location of the two carriers west of Honolulu. And then he says, see my entry of December 2nd. Then he says, uh, I ask what the meaning is of these carriers at this location, whereupon I receive the answer that it is probably in connection with Japanese reports of eventual American action. In other words, that's just double talk. It doesn't mean anything. Then he, he concludes by saying, 
No one among us mentions the possibility of an attack on Honolulu. I myself do not think about it because I believe everyone at Honolulu is 100% on the alert, just like everyone here at the Office of Naval Intelligence, end quote. So, to me, these two diary entries prove, number one, that those radio men and intelligence officers on the West Coast and in San Francisco were telling the truth when they say we transmitted our information on Japanese warships to the Office of Naval Intelligence. This is the proof that they did. Otherwise, ONI wouldn't have been able to track anything on a chart and show it to this foreign naval officer. Uh, he published his diary in 1952, the year I was born, and nobody dealt with it in the United States. Nobody seemed to be aware of it until John Toland in the 1980s. And then so uh, the two people that have uh, used this information uh, about the uh, radio direction finding, plotting the Japanese locations, and these diary entries are John Toland in his book Infamy and Robert Stinnett in his book Day of Deceit which was published in 2000. So they've done really good work, which, have persuaded, which has persuaded me that these radio men really did track these ships. And by the way, this is the fog of war, Brent. Yes, sir. Uh, the O&I thought it was only two Japanese carriers. They didn't know the total number. They, oh. they didn't know it was six. Nobody could conceive of such a thing. And I think what happened was you had limited radio communication between the Japanese flagship, the carrier Akagi, and the oil tankers, because there were seven oil tankers loosely following the Japanese warships across the Pacific so they could refuel at sea. And there was a massive North Pacific storm they had to go through, and a lot of these ships, the oil tankers were scattered in between November 30th and December 4th. And that, so there was a lot of radio chatter at low, at low power, which normally low power transmissions would not go more than about 100 miles. And at, at this time, however... There was tremendous sunspot activity and low power transmissions because of the ionized atmosphere were carrying halfway around the planet. And so the U.S. Navy in the Pacific between November 30th and December 4th were able to hear transmissions that normally they would not have been able to hear. And, it, and they thought there were only maybe six to eight ships and they thought there were only two carriers. So they were wrong about that, but they were absolutely spot on correct about the direction of travel, which was to the east and they were correct about the fact that they were Japanese warships and that there were some carriers. So uh, this is the really dramatic part of the story to me because everything ties together. And, you know, Roosevelt was a hands-on Navy man. He, uh, he met with naval officers regularly in the afternoons. Some of them would break, bring him the, uh, the broken diplomatic code called MAGIC, uh, which we started breaking in September 1940. So some of these people would come by and bring him the broken mag magic messages. What What is the Tokyo foreign minister saying to his ambassadors? What are they saying back to him? And other people would bring him Navy intelligence reports. And some of the people that he would talk to on a regular basis was the director of ONI and the chief of war plans and people like that. And, of course, the chief of naval operations. Everything funnels up through the ONI. Is there a distinct memo or order to sit on it, or does it, or do any, um, I guess what I'm asking is how far up before somebody takes notice of this and would have the authority to react on, on these memos? Does it have to go all the way to the president? Yes. Uh, he basically had uh, General George Marshall, our Army Chief of Staff, and the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Stark. He had them on a short leash 
they had sent out general war warning messages about possible war with Japan on November uh, 24th and November 27th. And, uh, but nobody mentioned Hawaii in those messages. Uh, <clears throat> he had them on a short leash. And in fact, uh, there were many people in the Navy the morning of December 7th when the Japanese sent a reply to our ultimatum of November 26th. They sent a reply to us that basically said up yours, uh, to use impolite language. And, uh, and, uh, there were people in the Navy that wanted to warn Admiral Campbell in Hawaii. So you can go anywhere you want. Oh, I love it. Okay. (laughs) So there were people who wanted Admiral Stark that morning before the Japanese airplanes arrived over Pearl Harbor to call Admiral Kimmel on the phone and warn him that diplomatic, uh, relations are about to be broken and war is about to start and he declined instead of calling admiral kimmel uh he said i think we've given enough warnings instead he called the president and he asked everybody to leave the room marshall engaged in significant delays and told lies uh years later about what he was doing the night before pearl harbor what he was doing that morning he engaged in dissembling and deflective tactics that morning and delayed as long as he could sending out a warning. And he finally sent one out that was very innocuous and didn't say much. It just said the Japanese are presenting what amounts to an ultimatum at one o'clock PM. Uh, what significance this has, we don't know. Be on, be on the alert accordingly. Send it by routine means. And it didn't arrive in the hands of general short until eight hours after the attack started. So, uh, I think uh, specific warnings of a specific attack on a specific place were uh, not going to be given unless Roosevelt said it was okay. I I believe these be men. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I've got to jump now, to this next question. I, I didn't sure. mean to interrupt you. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I, I, I feel this is an important question. The Japanese had attacked kind of a manifest destiny, folks, to take over all of Southeast Asia um, as well as China, and they were doing all kinds of awful, awful uh, war crimes. They were doing humanitarian things that were unspeakable. We know that Churchill sighed a big relief once the Americans came into the war. Was there any evidence that China thought, thank God, we're going to make it through this once the Americans decided they were coming in the war against Japan? The reason why I'm asking is because I'm looking for things, you know, Russia was an ally during the Second World War. Um, Maybe China was too. Maybe that's something we can build on for future relations. Well, I know that China was barely hanging on, and there was this uh, route called the Burma Burma Road from... uh, from Burma uh, into southern China, by which the British and the Americans were sending them, uh, uh, keeping them on a shoestring, sending them supplies, but not very much. It was very hard to get the supplies over there. The Japanese were bombing the Burma Road. Uh, I don't know. To answer your question, I don't know of any specific immediate reaction from China, but they must have been uh, overjoyed. It seems to me the U.S. just saved their, uh, their hides. That's well, we did, uh, and uh, especially if China was to understand that uh, we let this blow fall on us for the sake of uniting the country, which it did overnight, and uh, and by getting in the war, that really did pull their chestnuts out of the fire. Because until until Japan went to war with the U.S. and, the, and Great Britain, 
uh, all of their attention was on the China war. And once they went to war with us, it, it flipped and all their attention was on us. Uh, so, uh, yes, the fact that we entered the war and became a major adversary of Japan has saved China's chestnuts. I think big time. And just another date of coincidence, maybe, Operation Barbarossa, folks, was the attack by Hitler against Russia. That operation ended December 5th, 1941, only two days before December 7th, 1941. Probably just a coincidence. I don't think it has anything to do with it. But it's worth noting, just in case perhaps something comes up in the future. Um, Doug, do you, any final words, my friend? We have about a minute. Sure. Yeah, one thing. Okay. Uh, Roosevelt initially moved the Pacific Fleet from the West Coast to Hawaii as deterrence against Japan. He did that in May 1940. That policy eventually evolved into one of provocation. And there was a key memo sent to him, which encouraged him to do this. It was sent by an officer in naval intelligence in October 1940. And the two key lines in the message in the memo were, it is not believed that in the present state of political opinion, the United States government is capable of declaring war against Japan without more ado. So in other words, we need to do something else to be able to declare war against Japan. And the memo concludes by saying, if we follow all these steps and cut off our trade with Japan and keep the fleet in Hawaii, quote, if by these means Japan could be led to commit an overt act of war, so much the better, end quote. So this key memo, uh, which surely Roosevelt saw, all the historians agree that he did, uh, seems to have steered him from shifting from deterrence to provocation so then we have the oil embargo in July 41, and then the ultimatum in November. And folks, had the Americans not come in the war, um, the whole of Europe, and I would argue the world, would look a heck of a lot different right now. Um, because I do believe in, in my soul of souls that Hitler was after world domination. And God knows where the Holocaust would have ended up. I mean, we have to take that into account, too. So thank God they came in when they did. And it's unfortunate that it took such a horrible act for them to come in the war. But thank God they did. I want to thank Doug Horn for being on the show tonight. Once again, folks, the books are Deception, Intrigue, and the Road to War, Volumes 1 and Volumes 2. There's the music. I got to run. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for joining us tonight. See you next time. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, thank you Brent. Thank you, Beverly. Yeah.